1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Zachary Lowell, and joining me today is Toby Lincoln to discuss his new book, An Urban History of China, published this year, 2021, by Cambridge University Press. Dr. Lincoln is Associate Professor of Chinese Urban History at University of Leicester, In addition to his articles and book chapters, he is also the author of Urbanizing China in War and Peace, The Case of Wuxi County, published in 2015. As many listeners will know, China became predominantly urban for the first time in its history in 2011, and the country's urban population has only continued to grow over the past decade. Amid this rapid urbanization, anyone who wants to understand modern China needs at least some understanding of what's happening in Chinese cities book we're going to be discussing today is an accessible introduction to the history of cities in China from their earliest beginnings up until the present day. It's a great resource for students, educators, and anyone new to the subject. So with that, uh, Toby, thank you for joining us today.
0: Okay, thanks Zachary. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, no problem. So it's traditional on the podcast to ask our guests to start off by introducing themselves. So can you say a bit about your academic background and... Specifically, how you became interested in China and Chinese history?
0: Okay, thanks a lot. Yes, so as you said, I'm based here at the University of Leicester, and I'm actually in the Centre for Urban History um, at the University of Leicester, where I've been for about for about a decade. So I've become an urban historian, I think, very much uh, because um, I'm based in in the centre. I'm not sure I I was I was one or I really understood properly what an urban historian was before I became to Leicester, but I, but I certainly am. Um, now I'm really glad to be able to write about the urban history of China. Uh, but I first went to China in 1999 uh, to teach English, um, like, like many other people. Um, and I spent, spent a year um, uh, in, in, in China and, and then another year um, in Taiwan. And it's in Taiwan where I, I went to Taida and started studying Chinese. Um, and then on my return to the UK, I did a, a master's in Chinese studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. Um, and then um, I was lucky enough to get to get some funding and go to Oxford to do to do my DPhil. And, and after a short stint in, in the US, um, I, I then ended up at Leicester and I've been here now for 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 10 years. Um, and so I guess my interest in, in China and Chinese history really came from going going to the country. I, I'd always been interested in, in history, um, studied it at, uh, at, at undergraduates, but we didn't um, have the opportunity to do. Any modules on on China, um, it wasn't quite so popular um, in my undergraduate days as, as it is now, um, and so it was really by by going to China, um, and, and and learning Chinese and, and, and having such a great time and, and, and meeting such fantastic people that I decided that uh, I wanted to try to make Chinese history my my career, and uh, was fortunate enough um, uh, to be able to do so.
1: Okay great and uh when did the um the urban history part come into the picture for you, and when did you decide to put it together with your interest in in china
0: Well, I guess my my first book was was about the city of Wuxi, which is about a hundred miles or so um west of of shanghai and that that was a book about urban rural relations so it's a book about urbanization so it, it there, there was a, a a it was certainly about a city. But as I say, it wasn't until I came to Leicester, I, I think, that I really, I, I really realised that there was a whole sub-discipline um, of, of of urban history that. That that I could engage with. I I read a reasonable amount um, of Chinese urban history um, uh, uh, at Oxford. There was some fantastic books um, that have come out in kind of the nineteen nineties and, and the two thousands about about cities in in China. So I read those. But it was only when I when I came to Leicester that I realised that that here was here was a sub discipline that that I could. That, that I could kind of make, make my own to, 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 to a certain extent. And, I, I, and I'm really pleased to have, to, have, to have been able to do that over the past 10 years. But of course, still learning plenty, there's still plenty to learn about, about urban history and about Chinese history in general.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's incredible how uh, subfields and subdisciplines uh, continue to pop up. And um, it's, uh, it's also never too late to learn something new
0: that's right
1: yeah so okay as you uh, alluded to just a moment ago this is your your second book and uh, i'm really curious to know how you got involved in the project we're discussing today um <clears throat> for most academics that first book is is really um an extension of the phd dissertation but once you've kind of processed your prime material so to speak uh where do you go from there and uh what was it like making this uh, next step in in your case
0: ah uh, yeah that's the the difficult second album as as one of my friends uh, likes to call it you know when the band's made the big first album it's gone platinum and and what what do you do so yeah it was uh, th- th- this this the the this book isn't the big research project that i that i had planned that 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 is actually a, a history of how Chinese cities were reconstructed after World War II. And it took me a long time to get to that, that second project. Um, originally, um, after I finished the first book, I wanted to write a history of urban planning in 20th century China. And I put a couple of grant applications together and, uh, uh, and they didn't get funded. And as I was writing those grant applications, I realized, well, hang on, nobody's really talked about how Chinese cities were reconstructed after huge amounts of devastation. During, during World War II. And, and so that has become the, the big second research project, which is I, I'm working on and I'm going to be working on for, for quite some time. The reason that I wrote An Urban History of China is because Lucy Reimer, who is my editor at um, CUP, approached me as I was finishing the first book. Um, and she, she talked about about the series, the, the New Approaches um, to Asian Studies series. Um, which this which this book has been published in, and, sh- and she said, "You know, a history of cities, Chinese cities, sounds like it would be a really good thing to have in the series." And I was kind of like, "Okay, that, that, that sounds great. I'll I'll finish my first book, and then and then we can speak some more." And so we met up again a few years later at one of the Association for Asian Studies conferences, um, and she asked me to put um, a book proposal together. And unfortunately, uh, and um, that book proposal was something that uh, that CUP liked, and and, and so I then. Got the opportunity to to write the book, so this this kind of came out of of conversations with with editors, and I think it's quite important to to note as well that that when I was thinking about writing this book, and this is a book that is a, you know it's it's an introduction to 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 a theme. It's it has primary sources in it, but it's not predominantly kind of primary source driven. Um, like my first book was I, I i went to speak to my colleagues in in, in less my senior colleagues here uh, and asked them within the framework of a of a british academic career is this the right book to write at this career stage you know kind of early uh, transition from early to mid-career because often you write these kind of you know kind of interpretive overviews textbooks Slash textbooks, kind of, kind of books. You know, often you write them towards the end of your career. I think. So my colleagues at Leicester were, were incredibly helpful, um, and they, they encouraged me, you know, uh, uh, to go for it. Um, and uh, and I'm really pleased to 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 have had the opportunity um, uh, uh, to do some great research and read read about all sorts of cities and uh, that I wouldn't have had the opportunity to read about otherwise, um, and to write the book
1: yeah that's great. Uh, you know, something always comes into your lap, you know when the when when one door closes, another opens and it sounds like this was the this was the case.
0: yeah, that's absolutely right.
1: yeah so um, yeah what was so once you actually uh, set out to write the book, what was it like to approach? such a sweeping history, you know, something that covers really thousands of years. Um, what were some of the challenges that you faced uh, writing this kind of introductory text which could be accessible to, to a non-specialist or even to students?
0: So I, I think the major challenge was that I had to learn about um, quite, quite a lot about pre-modern Chinese Chinese urban history um, I, I already knew a, a fair amount but I realized I certainly didn't didn't know enough and um, and so I have to give a shout out to the National Central Library in, in, in Taipei um, where I, I wrote much of this this research proposal I, I had a fellowship at the Center for Chinese Studies there and they have a wonderful. Um, a, a selection of, of of books, so so I was able to kind of draw on them while I was while I was writing um, the research proposal, and you know it, it was in discussions with Cambridge that that I realised that that I had to write about the history of Chinese cities from from the beginning. Originally, I was kind of well, I'll just write about late imperial China and, and modern China. That's what I'm most comfortable with, and. And, you know, Lucy kind of said, hey, we'd like something that goes back a little bit further, if that's OK. And I was like, oh, OK, all right. Well, uh, so I started to, you know, think about the Ming a little bit, the Ming dynasty a bit more. And then I realized you can't really write about the Ming dynasty if you haven't written about the Song dynasty. And then I was like, really, well, then you have to write about the Tang dynasty, because otherwise the Song dynasty doesn't make much sense. And then I was like, OK, I'll just go back right to the beginning and just start from the beginning. Um so so that was the, the 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 thought process that that I went through um and that's why the book turned out as as it did um and the 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 as I was thinking about the research proposal I was thinking about how am I going to how am I going to write this so I decided to divide each chapter into three three parts um, and so, uh, so the first part talks about the urban system. The second part talks about urban form and governance, and the third part talks about kind of urban culture and daily life. And what what that does is it, I hope anyway, it makes it easier for readers to 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 to, to access um, what what I'm trying to say to kind of deal with with this long long durée of of, of urban history. But it also made it much easier to write because basically each chapter was 3000 three, 3, word essays. And so as I started to read about the histories, the historical debates of of cities in the Han Dynasty or or, 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 or the the Tang Dynasty or whatever it was, once I'd read enough to be able to write four or 5,000 words very comfortably, I knew that I'd read enough to be able to to, to write that for readers. Um, Because, you know, there's a trade-off between introducing historical debates and then going so far into those historical debates that that, that you make that you make the, the book too complicated. Um, and the idea I hope is that I've introduced enough of the historical debates in each in each chapter for readers who are then interested in a particular city or a particular time period to then go off um, and, and 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 find out more for themselves. Um, so yeah it, yeah, it was a challenge, but an enjoyable challenge.
1: Yeah, I think you really did a good job on the sources. Um, anything pre-modern um, is a bit beyond uh, my knowledge, um, especially further back in time. But I, I really enjoyed the the diversity of sources, um, you know, for the for the imperial era, and also later on as well too. And I think you do do a very good job of walking that tightrope between offering an intriguing introduction, but also, you know, not going too deeply into uh, various historical debates and specialty topics as well. So again, another thing to really recommend this book to a newcomer, but uh, actually that kind of also anticipates a bit of uh, my next question, which is about um, balancing uh, a chronological story with, uh, with various themes as well. So you mentioned a few themes a moment ago, but could you could you tell us a bit more about about uh, about those?
0: Sure. So uh, so as I said, each each chapter is divided into um, three sections: um, uh, uh, the urban system, urban planning and governance, um, and then urban culture and daily life. And the idea is is very much to um, introduce what urban history is as well as to talk about the urban history of China. So urban history is is looks at how cities relate to each other. So that's the urban system, trade, population flows, migration, that kind of thing. And then it looks at what happens in cities. So how um, the, uh, uh, how they're structured, the built environment, architecture, how they're governed—be that um, official governance in this case um, um, of, of, of from 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 the empire, or, or unofficial governance, um, be it um, through guilds or or, or, or or charities. And then finally, we have kind of urban culture and daily life. What happens in cities? How do people? Um, uh, uh, kind of live in such a way that cities are both distinct from each other. Suzhou is, is is different from Beijing during the late imperial period, for example, or Shanghai is different from Beijing during the early 20th century. And also, of course, cities have a distinct identity from the countryside that, that surrounds them, the idea of, of, of an urban identity. So those are some of the themes that um, I really wanted to, to bring out in this tripartite division of each chapter and I think that also links urban history to other historical developments because urban history never just stands alone. you always study cities in relation to other um, to other historical forces, be it the history of capitalism, the history of the development of the modern nation state, for example histories of war and destruction, environmental history, etc um, so that's that's the, 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 one of the complications of, 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 of urban history, I think.
1: Mm, yeah. And again, that anticipates my next question again, which is about historiography. So over recent decades, what have historians, uh, both in, in China and the West, um, <clears throat> what kinds of questions have they been asking about cities in China? Or how have, how have Chinese cities uh, been studied in the past and how might that be changing now?
0: So I think that the study of um, Chinese cities has has changed along with the study of China. So no longer do we think of you know imperial China as this kind of unchanging landscape. We see it as dynamic and, and globally connect, connected, um, and then morphing into something that we would understand, but morphing into into in, into part into part of the modern world, beginning in the in the late nineteenth century um, and going up to today and. And it was Max Weber who uh, really historicized Chinese cities for us, but he did so by by, by seeing them as, as as kind of political nodes um, in, in, in an empire in an imperial bureaucracy which um, uh, extended outwards and downwards from the capitals to the provinces and down. Um, to the counties. And he did that because he wanted to emphasize the development of early modern capitalism in Europe by looking at um, independent municipalities um, as, as kind of pushing um, uh, 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 capitalism. And that idea of, of, uh, of Chinese citizens largely unchanging was taken up by Frederick Motz, a really famous historian of China who admitted that, that cities were, were, were really important commercial spaces, but he saw them um, as l- not really distinct from the surrounding countryside from a cultural perspective. And uh, There's a, a really famous passage where he talks about um, urban architecture being completely indistinct um, from, from rural architecture. Um, and then we see as scholars started to look at, particularly at the late 19th and the early 20th century, and, and that really happened in, in I suppose, that the 1990s really that really took off and started to look at modernity in China and how China became a modern nation state. A lot of that focus was on cities. A lot of that focus was on Shanghai. Um, and then cities started to be seen as kind of the, 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 the multi, the, the really complex entities that, that they are. Um, and we started to look at various aspects of cities um, in the late imperial and modern period, and then that then went back into, into, in, in time. So now we look at uh, different um, social groups in cities, um, uh, uh, workers, um, kind of an embryonic middle class, perhaps, if you like, in, in, in places like early 20th Shanghai. Um, it has been some fantastic work on, on, on gender and family, um, and, 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 and and so now I think it's fair to say that we think of Chinese cities as in the same way as we think of cities um, elsewhere around the world as as, as complicated entities um, meaning different things for for the different people um, who, who who live in them. and I also think it's important to acknowledge that a lot of this work was done by Chinese historians um, and particularly, in places like um, Sichuan University, um, the Academies of, of Social Sciences in in, in Tianjin and, and in Shanghai, um, uh, uh, along with a few other universities, there's been some excellent urban history of Chinese cities, and a lot of it was was in the 1980s was was really focused on 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 on, on economic history, but. After the nineteen nineties, there was kind of a cultural turn. I think um, in a lot of Chinese in in, in, in a lot of Chinese um, history, and so we see that um, um, in as in in Chinese studies um, of cities. There's some really fantastic work that's come out of China in the last twenty or thirty years, um, um, looking at places like Shanghai, but also our um, uh, uh, places uh, other cities um, across the country and done by done by often by local historians working in local universities and certainly for anybody who who is studying a city in China um, one of the first places to look is to look at what local historians are doing because they often um, have fantastic access to sources and have written some great some really great great work
1: yeah that's fascinating I think the the field is really developing quite, Quite quickly now, and there have been some really exciting studies recently. But still, it's uh, yeah incredible how much uh, Weber really overshadowed the, the the field for so long, and even people who are trying to work against him still come up against his uh, shadow, so to speak. But
0: um... yes, well, he's a, he's a, he's it's 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 a really good place to start thinking about. Um, uh, uh, historical change in China. Weber is a really good person to, to 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 start with, and then to think about how 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 our ideas have developed um, from them. And, and he, for somebody who who wasn't primarily um, a scholar of China, he's he's left a, a huge mark, um, and, and, and we're indebted to him for that because yeah. he's a, he's a fantastic scholar.
1: Well, speaking of uh, how people think about cities, um, my next question oh. is. Um when did uh, people in China perhaps start to think of, about cities in terms that we might recognize today, meaning you know in terms of, of places with a um, distinct urban culture or urban way of life um, and is the is the idea of the urban something that existed in uh, in, in ancient times or or is it also um or rather a, a, a modern intellectual uh, creation within China <laughs>
0: So that's an excellent question. So one of the key claims of the book is that, obviously, for centuries China was was the, the largest agricultural empire in, in the world. The vast majority of people lived in, in the countryside, but but I I, I claim that nevertheless China had an urban civilization, and that this was something that 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 had developed um, by by the Han Dynasty. Um, and it was very much concentrated in in, in in capital cities, in the imperial capitals. But nevertheless, there was really an understanding that there was um, an urban culture uh, that very much um, existed apart from the countryside um, and, uh, and that cities were raised in, 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 in certain ways. They had a recognizable urban form. Um, it, going back to kind of pre-imperial days if we, I mean if we want to go back to kind of Neolithic times it's, it's incredibly difficult to know, of course whether um, Chinese fe- felt that, that a city was was distinct, that where, where they lived was, was urban. And, and I'll leave that very much to to, to archaeologists um, uh, to, 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 to debate. I, I think it's fair to say that that humans have lived in settlements. Um, for many thousands of years, and some of those settlements have been more important than others, whether that's for political reasons or for um, commercial reasons or for defensive reasons. And so cities have, have different functions, and the largest cities have more than one function. They're both political centers and commercial centers and cultural centers. And it's 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 that kind of multifunctionality, I think, that gives rise to... The idea that the city has its own has its own cityness, if you like, has its own identity that is that is distinct both from the, the, the countryside around it, but also from from other cities. Uh, and I would say certainly by the time we get to um, imperial China, by the time we get to the Han dynasty, that, that idea is is well understood. Um, although what that means changes um, across time. So Tang Dynasty Chang'an, um, for example, was the, was the imperial capital and it, it drew everyone to it. Everybody who, who uh, and, and urban culture was, um, what it meant to be urban, was very much concentrated in Tang Dynasty Chang'an. But by the time we get to the Song Dynasty, because um, of the way in which elite culture had developed, we see multiple urban centers. And actually, the capital was no longer necessarily seen um, as the the place that set set the pace uh, for urban styles and urban tastes. Certainly by late imperial China, the capital in Beijing was the place where you see imperial urban culture, but it's Suzhou. Um, and some of the other cities um, in the lower Yangtze Delta that kind of set set the pace for for for, for 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 kind of what it means to be cool, I guess. In you know, in in, in, in cities, right? You know, if you wanted to be to be cool, you, you went to Suzhou and, and and you hung out and and, and you, you you spent your money on on on, 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 on if you had it on um, on on certain goods and stuff, and, and and a lot of those came from Suzhou. So that so that so and that that's. And that, I think, is, 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 is the important thing about looking at imperial Chinese cities in particular is that what it means to be, to be urban changes over time and and the, 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 uh, the centre of urban culture, the, the, the cities that are seen as, as kind of foremost and uh, really driving um, uh, change also change over time. They're not just the imperial capitals. Those capitals are always important, but there are other cities in imperial China which are, which which are really key. And then, of course, as we get into the modern period, um, again, the centres of, of 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 urban change um, uh, uh, shift again, um, uh, predominantly to 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 Shanghai. Certainly, in the early part of the twentieth century, anyway.
1: Mm, okay, that's fascinating. I want to ask a uh, question next about the morphology of cities and uh, a question that might uh, span um, the, uh, the pre-modern and, and the modern eras. And that's uh, specifically about the role of, of walls and gates and barriers and other features that are meant to control access and, and movement in cities. And of course, anyone who's been to a Chinese city today will will certainly be familiar with the walled housing compounds that are, a ubiquitous part of, of urban life um, but uh, these are uh, you know walls and barriers were also a big part of how cities were built in the past as well so how should we how should we think about the literal and symbolic role of, of walls and gates over the long array of, of Chinese history
0: certainly that's that's a really interesting question so um, <clears throat> The the urban form of, of cities was set um, really by the late the, 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 the late Han Dynasty, when the city became kind of a physical manifestation of of of, of, of the imperial presence on on Earth. There's a a, a relationship between. The emperor's place as as the son of heaven, within the Chinese understanding of cosmology, and then his place at the center of the city, um, on on earth, and that that sets the scene for the way in which imperial urban form develops with its 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 its, its, its palace city at the center, and then the way in which the, the city walls change over time. So real symbolic, really, really important um, uh, for the idea of the empire. Um, And that is partly why many cities in China um, are walled in the way that that, that they have been. But of course, city walls are physical constructions. And so they also reflect the surrounding um, uh, 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 geography. Um, so they they, they 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 follow kind of rivers or the, or, or or they follow the, the the terrain, and then cities were built for other reasons. Sorry, city walls were built for other reasons. They were built um, for defensive reasons. Um, uh, whether it's in um, north northwest China um, during the uh, early early Tang Dynasty, um, cities were were, were 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 built to to to, to support. Um, the the trading routes um, that we know as the uh, Silk Road, or um, along the coast during the Ming Dynasty, and we see city walls being built because of concerns about about pirates. Um, and then within cities, at certain times, city walls um, are used uh, to um, to control. Um, uh, 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 the way in which society mixes together and this is particularly um, uh, we see this particularly during the, uh, uh, the, in, in Han Dynasty Chang'an and also in, in, in early Tang Dynasty Chang'an and so there is a, a symbolic importance in that um, these, these, these walls of, of wards then um, uh, uh, create different spaces for different groups of people and divide different different social strata within cities. Okay. And and there is a legacy of that throughout Imperial China, I think. Um, in in so the, as as the as the, the, the walls of the wards came down, often the streets that replaced them might take on some of the some of the same names um, as these wards. And we see this in, in imperial cities in places like Suzhou. And then, of course, a lot of walls came down in the late 19th and and into the 20th century. A lot of them uh, came down during during the Second World War and and, and more walls were were destroyed during the early Maoist period. And so the gated compounds that we have today are are not so much a reflection of this this long history of, of walls within cities, but are actually a reflection of the way in which land was was parceled out within cities and given to different um to different work units given to 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 industrial concerns or universities or hospitals or whatever and the way in which that land was then privatized um, in the in the reform periods and that 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 influenced um how um urban developments uh were then were then built and how and how housing communities were built but in the twenty first century, a lot of these housing communities also divide cities by by strata. So there are, you know, multiple kind of gated compounds. You kind of walk around Chinese cities, and you can see, you know, you can find um, one gated compounds which 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 are obviously for 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 the well off. Um, the quality of the housing is much better. Um, often they have they have they have better amenities it's quite difficult um, to, to, to get inside them and then you have slightly more open compounds um, which 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 are, are, are kind of a Chinese version of, of of social housing. So even though it's quite hard to see a direct historical influence from kind of wards and, and, and imperial walls into the modern day urban landscape, nevertheless, the importance of barriers in enforcing um, uh, uh, social differences and social hierarchies, uh, I think, I think remains, and that, and that is, I think, a, 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 a global um, phenomenon. Um, cities, part of the way in which cities have become organised, is by by um, by social strata, and you have you have kind of good. Bits of cities which are perceived as being places where people want to live, um, and bits of cities which are perceived as, as being places where people don't want to live, and it's it's often those 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 bits of the cities which which are, 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 are where where people who are less well off um, tend to tend to congregate.
1: Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. Um, that's a a lot of things I, I wasn't aware of. So thank you for sharing that, but. Speaking of the way resources are distributed, um, I have a question about the environment as well. Uh, what role did the environment play in uh, in early urbanization in China, like in the pre-modern and imperial uh, eras?
0: Yeah, so it's, it's absolutely key. The environment is always really important. Cities, cities always exist as part of their hinterlands um, and where... That hinterlands, where where the ability of cities of the hinterland to support the city broke down, that was that was quite often quite an important reason, or or part of the reason that cities fell. So we can see that with with Northern Wei Luoyang, um, in the fifth and the early sixth centuries. So it's a city of around. Half a million people, supported by an empire of twenty million people, and 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 and, and that kind of ran up against resource constraints. And that was part of the reason. That, that that it felt that there were other reasons too. Um, I don't really talk much about kind of the specific impact of kind of things like floods, for example, um, or, or, or typhoons. I think I think the impact of of, of uh, and I think that there's probably some fantastic imperial urban history. Uh, urban environmental history, which can be written about cities. There have been some wonderful books about about flooding and famine in China, but I think there's, there's probably quite a lot more that could be written um, about cities. Uh, one thing that it is important to mention is, of course, uh, the Grand Canal uh, built during the Sui Dynasty to, to link the the, the the grain basket, the rice basket of, of, of the Lower Yangtze Delta, China's kind of most most commercially prosperous and, and fertile area, with with the the, the historical imperial capitals in, in the north. And it was the Grand Canal which formed the backbone of imperial Chinese urban civilization um, from the sixth century all the way up to to the nineteenth century. And, and and an awful lot has been written about about um, uh, uh, how the the Grand Canal um, uh, uh, silted up an awful lot and and the amount of money and the amount of of resources that that various dynasties put into ensuring that that the Grand Canal um, uh, uh, flowed and and that goods were able to to, to make their way um, up and down the Grand Canal. So without the Grand Canal, um, and it's linked to, to the wider river systems of China, then um, Chinese urban civilization, I think, perhaps would have been very different um, because it was that that allowed the lower Yangtze Delta to be the place where commercial cities or more commercially oriented cities flourished to support these imperial capitals, and the vast majority of imperial capitals have been um, in, in 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 the north.
1: Okay. Well, um, with that, maybe we could. Uh... Okay start talking about Chinese cities uh, themselves and especially the earliest ones that you uh that you talk about in your book so wh- where where were they when were they built and uh what what cities are you focusing on
0: so that's a really good question can you hear me
1: yeah I can hear you
0: yeah Brilliant. so yeah that's a really good question um so uh, the earliest Chinese cities were built um, along the Yellow River and and some of its uh, tributaries, um, and uh, so the, they date from kind of from around five thousand to two thousand BCE. There's the first kind of the Yangshao culture and the Longshan culture that, uh, that, that, uh, that, that 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 followed on from that. But cities were also built um, along the Yangtze River and near present. They Chengdu. And so the idea that Chinese um, uh, culture began on, on the central plains and then spread out across the rest of China is, is has now been replaced by kind of multiple cultural sites appearing at roughly the same time and then, and then mixing together at, at various points. So, but the first dynastic capital for which archaeological and textual evidence exists is, is Anyang um, of the Shang Dynasty. Um, so that's around the kind of the second millennium BCE. Uh, and that's, that's the, the, the cradle, I guess, of imperial urban civilization um, developed in, in the Central Plains. And then obviously it was um, uh, Chang'an um, near, near Xi'an was, was the, the capital um, of, 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 the, of the Han dynasty. And that became the first imperial capital, the center of, 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 of that dynasty.
1: Mm. And what were some of the features of these early cities um what did they look like and uh what role did uh, for instance um markets and ritual sites or bureaucratic institutions play in in their development
0: certainly so um i all um, so I, I i argue that all cities were kind of multifunctional so um, a, a, a lot of them had had a political center with with ritual sites, um, um, and they also uh, had had markets. So by the time we get to um, the imperial period, um, particularly uh, Luoyang um, in 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 the latter half of of, of of the Han Dynasty, we see the main um, uh, uh ritual sites in in one place um so this is the, the 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 shrine to the ancestors um the temples to the soil and grain um and it's Luoyang that very much um uh solidifies the this 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 kind of relationship between the emperor as 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 as, as the son of heaven within the chinese com- com- cosmology with the imperial capital as the center of the empire but at the same time, and drawing on um, the the the, the, the Ji, which was was written um, uh, 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 during the Zhou Dynasty and, and set out the ideal for what um for, for what an imperial city should be, they also had um had had markets. So the idea would that there would be two markets, an East market and a a West market. We see that kind of repeated in imperial cities. So we see from the very beginning that Chinese cities not only had a, had a political and a ritual significance, but they also had um, a a commercial function um, as well.
1: Okay, great. And um, um, with time and the expansion of the, of the imperial urban civilization, um, what did this mean for uh, cosmopolitanism of early China, like perhaps the Three Kingdoms period or the Sui and the Tang?
0: Yeah, so that's, that's <coughs> so from the very beginning, Chinese cities were, were globally connected. So we see Buddhism beginning to come into China during the late Han dynasty, um, through uh, through links um, to Central Asia, and so Northern Wei Luoyang, which was established at the end of, of, of the fifth century, um, was was a city that was full of of, of, of Buddhist temples. Um, and we have a fantastic um, a, a record which I which which I use in the book um, uh, to talk about, um, uh, 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 the, which which talks about the, the Buddhist temples and the monasteries of um, in. In, in 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 the city and at the same time around the same time Jiankang kang near present day nanjing was was developing into the commercial center um of of, of 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 the lower Yangtze delta a city of between one and two million people and also a center uh for buddhism um and and then as we move into into the tang dynasty and the revival of those trading routes which which we which we we, we we call the Silk Road. What we see is is the goods of, of Persia and the goods of of, of of Samarkand coming into into China, but also the people as well. So there were thousands of people. Um, thousands of merchants who, who lived in, in 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 Tang Dynasty Chang'an, and they brought with them food. They brought with them clothing. It was it was very popular for for Chinese for people to wear Turkic style um, clothing, for example. Um, and and so we see a real mixing of of of, of cultures. Um, by the time we get to the Tang Dynasty, and a real um, and China is very much part of the the, the Asian. A um, uh, 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 globe, if you like, very much connected to uh, to Central Asia via, via via those trading routes, and and also to some extent connected uh, to sea trade as well. And we see in 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 Canton very early on, we see uh, 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 the influence of Islam as well, and some of the earliest mosques date from from the very late Tang Dynasty down on on the southeast coast of China. So. So from so China was Chinese cities were, were really cosmopolitan and globally connected. Quite quite early on, very, very much within the first millennium um, of of imperial China.
1: Yeah, and also uh, during this time period as well. Uh, I mean, the, the Tang and the Song, you also see a, a literate um, gentry culture starting to emerge at this time as well. Um, so what were some of the things that they found noteworthy and, and Im, Im, important to, to record?
0: So that, that's absolutely correct. So the Tang Song, we often call this, that this is part of, of, of the Tang Song transition. Mm. Um, and what we see during this period is, is, is a huge development um, in, of, of commercialization in China. Um, and there is a, a growth in the number of people um, who consider themselves gentry because they, more people uh, 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 try to take the exams um, to become um, imperial officials. And although a lot of them don't, don't end up passing the exams or they don't pass the, the highest exams to become imperial officials, it's that, that the, the act of taking the exam kind of makes them, or studying for the exam makes them part of the gentry. And so... Because there are so many people that they're not all going to to Kaifeng in the north to or Hangzhou during the Southern Song to become officials. A lot of them are staying at home in their cities, and at the same time, kind of new technologies, which increase crop yields, are pushing trade between cities, and we get kind of towns developing as 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 periodic fairs, periodic periodic markets developing into small towns so we get we get these places developing and, and they start to develop their own urban identity and we can see that through um, city god temples so city god temples really um uh, uh, uh start off in during the song dynasty and, and they're a, a religious manifestation a, a religious expression of of urban identity and um, you go and pray to your city god and your city god is is is, is kind of the Often somebody who was who was quite important to that to that to, did something really important um, to help to, to to help that city develop and, and was then is then deified and and, and people later generations pray to him, and so these gentry are kind of you know that they they, they, they they didn't go to, to the imperial capital to become an official or that well they retired and they went back to their to their to 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 their small city often a long. Um, uh, 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 the Grand Canal, um, and so they start to write about their cities, and they start to write histories of their cities, the the, the 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 local histories that we know as 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 gazetteers, which become incredibly popular in 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 late Ming, um, and and, and Qing China. But the earliest gazetteers date from the Song Dynasty. Um, they start to write about um, uh, not just the histories of the cities, but the local scenic sites. You know what you should start to see, and so urban distinct. Local urban identities start to develop as we get into as we get into the later Song Song Dynasty, um, and 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 that I think is the beginning of the flowering of of of, of imperial of the imperial urban civilization.
1: Yeah, uh, it's really fascinating at this time to see what people were writing and how they thought about um, different kinds of urban identity and. And urban culture, and uh, what they what they chose to record, but uh, what um, what were some of the other aspects of this uh, flowering of of uh, imperial urbanization, uh, especially as we get into like the early Qing, for example?
0: Sure. So by the time we get to the early to the to the Qing dynasty, to late, late imperial Chinese, so at the end of the Ming, the beginning of the Qing dynasty, we have an urban civilization, which is certainly as vibrant as anything that has existed anywhere else in in in, in the pre modern world. Um, <coughs> excuse me, and it, it's very much based around uh, the, the, the 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 lower Yangtze Delta, and the lower Yangtze Delta develops into into the most prosperous of China of China's macro regions and macro regions. um, are, are, are a way in which we think spatially about late imperial China, kind of distinct regional economies that developed after the Song dynasty and into the Ming and the Qing dynasty. So we have kind of a, a geographical way of thinking about late imperial China. And there are issues with macro regions. They've been around for, we've been thinking about them for a long time since, um, since um, uh, G. William Skinner came up with them in, in, in the 1960s and 70s. But nevertheless, they're quite a good way of thinking about different parts of China. So the Lower Yangtze Delta remains kind of the the the, the key commercial heart of the Chinese Empire, and then the imperial center is is is, is in Beijing. Um, and within the Lower Yangtze Delta, it's Suzhou which is which very much is the commercial center. It's Suzhou that sets that sets the trend. So if you want if you want to buy the best furniture, if you want to buy um, the best uh, uh, silk. Um, you would go to Suzhou um, because even if it wasn't made in Suzhou, it would certainly be traded in Suzhou. Okay, and it's in Suzhou where a lot of the gentry kind of end up, and they 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 they, they you know they, they they write their poetry. Um, they 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 start to write uh, uh, novels. Start to appear during this period, and it sets Suzhou sets the trend for elite um, urban culture, and so. Gentry in particular start writing not only histories of the cities but also guidebooks. Um, and and, and Faisa Yan has written this, this wonderful book about about and and Nanjing, where she talks about the gentry who wrote guidebooks about the important places in the city. And these guidebooks would have made their way um, up the the the, the 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 Grand Canal, up the great cities of the Grand Canal, Suzhou, Yangzhou, and, and other gentry would have would have would have read these guidebooks. Um, and so they would—they might have visited Nanjing, they might have visited Yangzhou, they might have visited Hangzhou, but they wouldn't necessarily have needed to. The guidebooks would would have told them um, uh, 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 about this 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 urban culture, which now extended beyond one city between cities. And at the same time as that, we have other types of 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 writings that were specifically about cities and about the way in which people move between cities. So if you're a merchant, you would have read. Um, specific books that um, that describe some of some of the dangers um, of travelling, or or, or, where, or where to get the best food on particular routes, and um, uh, 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 things like that. So we see an urban culture which is not focused on the imperial city, which we see during in, during the Tang Dynasty and Tang Dynasty Chang'an, but is focused on, on on urban culture. And of course, imperial Beijing had its had its, had, had its temples, um, it, it, that's where the emperor was, was based, um, and, and the, the, the rituals that the imperial family undertook um, were really important to the life of, of, of imperial Beijing, but Beijing was also um, a, 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 a city where an awful lot of people came to take uh, the, the, the imperial exams, um, so you have um, a, 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 an awful lot of, 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 different, of different people from, from across China kind of establishing themselves in Beijing, and that that forms part um, of, 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 of Beijing's imperial distinctiveness. So by the time we get to the late Ming and the Qing dynasty, it's not just that we have an imperial urban civilization, but we have different cities have their own identities. Different cities are known for different things. And I think that's really important. Okay.
1: Yep, Sorry, you said uh, uh, different cities have their own identity.
0: Yes, that's correct. Absolutely, and that. So, so I would say that you know, if you wanted to, to go, if if you go to Hangzhou, you'd go to Westlake, and you you know you would do that's what that's what you'd go and see. If you were in in Suzhou, you'd go to the. the the gardens of Suzhou, and you would you would visit kind of important gardens um, of of, of, of um, which were of, of, of a certain family, or or, or, or or if you wanted to see, um, uh, um, uh, and, and then Beijing also had its own had its own identity as well. So so different cities were known for certain things, I would say, by by late imperial China, and and people wrote about them and reflected upon those cities, and that 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 I think is 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 really emblematic of, an, of a city's identity where people are writing about it and saying, you know, Beijing is known for, for these kind of foods. And, and and during the autumn in Beijing or during the summer in Beijing, you go and, and, and you hang out in the hills overlooking the city because it's really hot in the city. And you go and have a picnic over there. And these are the kind of things that people are writing about.
1: Okay, sorry for the technical trouble there for a moment, but I was uh, moving into a question about printing and uh, publishing outside of... Uh, elite uh, circles. Is there any evidence for that in the formation of, uh, of urban culture in the in the Ming and the Qing era? Um,
0: so certainly, um, quite a lot of people had had some level of of literacy, but I think it is fair to say that the vast majority of people in Chinese cities were not able to read kind of books or, 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 or gazetteers or official publications, um, they could certainly read enough characters um, for kind of day-to-day um, commerce. Um, and th- what this means is that uh, uh, almost everything that we know about people who aren't the elites in China comes from what 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 the elites wrote about them. And this is this is a perennial problem in for, for historians, right? It's 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 the poorest people, the children, women, um who who leave the the the, the, the least um direct impact in, in terms of, of, of the written word on, on on history. So we always have to be very careful. But we do know um quite a lot about 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 um, non-elite groups in in Chinese cities. You know we know an awful lot about um, the occupational makeup of, of many Chinese cities. So in in, in many in, in many imperial Chinese cities, uh, that different different occupations would 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 congregate in certain areas of the city. So you'd go to one part of the city to buy your meat. You'd go to another part of the city to buy kind of your furniture. Another part of the city to buy your clothing. Um, and often. Those those people um, had migrated to cities. They set up organisations known as as, as native place societies or, or, or same trade societies, um, and we have we have pretty good pretty good evidence about various aspects of, of, uh, of their lives. We also know quite a lot about the religious life of cities. Um, and Susan Macan's wonderful book on on Beijing the temples in Beijing. Um, during uh, the Ming and the Qing dynasties is an excellent example of that. So we know um, that p- what people did when they they celebrated the main religious festivals, the Buddhist festivals, the Taoist festivals, the main Chinese festivals, Chinese New Year, Mid Autumn Festival, etc., etc. And we know a certain, to a certain extent what what people did in terms of in terms of entertainment. Um, some of the the, the 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 theaters that they went to. Um, uh, some of the the, the the things that they drank and, uh, and that they ate, and some of the sports that, that they played. But but often this is through the lens, as I said, of of, of elites, and, and we must always, uh, and that also informs discussions of, of, of things like gender relations, um, and discussions about about childhood, for example. We always have to be extremely careful that we 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 are that we're, we're, we're aware of, of, of who is writing. Um, but I'm, I'm sure I don't need to tell many of your listeners that that's, that's kind of fairly standard.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Affair. Yeah. So to move ahead uh, a little bit in our timeline, by the time we get to the late Qing period, uh, the next big development is the arrival of uh, Western imperialism following the Opium Wars. So what were some of the effects of this imperialism on the existing urban system, not just in the treaty port cities like Shanghai, but also perhaps uh, in cities further away from coastlines?
0: Certainly. So the first thing that the arrival of treaty ports did was it, 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 it was the final nail in the coffin for the Grand Canal in terms of being the backbone of, 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 of urban civilization. So the Grand Canal often silted up. It, it, it when the yellow river flooded or the yellow river changed its 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 course, which it did at various points in Chinese history, that, that was always a problem. But um it was the, the silting up of, of 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 the Grand Canal, because the, the Qing dynasty was was busy doing things like putting down the Taiping Rebellion um in the mid-19th century, um combined with uh the, the 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 rise of steamships and the fact that it was cheaper for for rice to then be carried up the coast which was the end of the grand canal so a city like yangzhou for example um in 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 northern jiangsu or or, or just across just, just, just across the, 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 the north of the yangtze river hugely important in in late imperial china but by the nine the end of the 19th century had really fallen you know, really declined um, uh, uh, an awful lot. So, so, so we do see um a decline in in some cities um in northern Jiangsu and uh, and southern Shandong, um but quite a lot of cities benefited from from treaty ports. So one of those, so Suzhou actually benefited hugely um from 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 its connections to to Shanghai and uh, and we often used to think that Suzhou really important commercial city. In, in, in the Ming and the Qing dynasty actually declined in the end of the 19th century. But but after it had recovered from the Taiping Rebellion, what happened was that a lot of merchants who, who had made their money in Shanghai then set up branches of their business in, in in Suzhou and it still supplied Shanghai. So the treaty ports oriented some of the Chinese economy towards the developing modern global economy. But but foreigners were, were not, you know, for, for foreigners who were kind of running a lot of that global trade were not going out to places like Suzhou or going out to cities around Tianjin and, uh, and interacting with people who were producing cotton or producing silk. That 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 trade, the trade from the countryside to the small villages to the towns to the cities, which had been going on for for decades or centuries, that trade continued to be run by by Chinese people, um, and it, and the direction of that trade just just went. Just just changed, and that it was now out of places like Shanghai or, 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 or Tianjin. But I think it's certainly fair to say that by the turn of the, tw- the the century, by the time we get we get the beginnings of industrialization in the early nineteen hundreds, um, uh, the urban system is very much oriented towards towards the coastal cities, Tianjin, Shanghai, and then down in the south, Hong
1: Kong. Mm, yeah, another feature of the late Qing was uh, the emphasis. Uh, that you saw on reform and modernization efforts, um, not just by the Qing state but among socially conscious groups and individuals. Uh, how did this emphasis on on reform influence Ch- Chinese cities uh, in terms of uh, maybe uh, urban life or e- early efforts of uh, uh, of modernization, for instance?
0: Yeah, so that that's a really good question. So. Um there are several things that, that are going on. So the, the Qing dynasty, that the government um, puts its modernization efforts not so much into into into, into urban infrastructure uh, but into things like, like the military. Uh, that, that changes right at the very end of the 19th century. And, and they open up what are what are known as Shangbu, so so kind of commercial ports. And they're effectively tax. Tax-free zones or, 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 or places where businesses are encouraged to, to, to set themselves up, be they Chinese businesses or foreign businesses, and and the most famous, the most developed of, of those is, is Jinan in, in Shandong, which becomes um, which later becomes a, a, a rail hub uh, that develops it in there. And there, there are about thirty or so of those that develop um, across across the country, and I, I think quite a lot more work needs to be done on. on 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 the Shandong on the commercial ports as as state sponsored attempts to develop Chinese cities. I think there's a really good PhD in in that for somebody. Um, but we also see um, individuals uh, and and groups investing in urban infrastructure. So some of that money comes from comes from guilds, and the most famous um, uh, or, or the most well known, I suppose, at least to, to readers in the West, is is probably Hankou. Um, uh, because of, of william Rowe's fantastic two books um, about Hanko in the 19th century and the fact that that kind of uh, the, the guilds of the city take on a lot of the responsibilities for things like firefighting um, uh, urban hygiene, urban defense um, we also have cities which where industrialists um, uh, develop, and I suppose one of the most famous of those is, is Nantong. Um, just across, just north of of, of the Yangtze River. And in the last decade or so of the 19th century, um, uh, 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 Zhang Jian, uh, the cotton magnate, uses some of the money that he's made from the cotton industry to build uh, a new road system in part of the city, to build a a museum, to build a hospital um, and, and other urban amenities. And we see that in cities across China, in the very late 19th and early 20th centuries.
1: Mm, yeah, that's fascinating. Actually, I was uh, wondering about the role of um, industrialization, especially uh, as we move into the Republican era. Mm-hmm. And specifically, I was wondering how the spread of, of industrialization combined with urban modernity and also massive popular protests, um, how these uh, these different forces might have somehow been constitutive of each other?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a, a fascinating question. So um, industrialization brings people to, to cities, most notably to, to Shanghai. So around 50% of Chinese industry was concentrated in Shanghai, so the city really grew um, in terms of population. And so some protests we see is is is, is just the result of kind of simple uh, uh, uh labor disputes and uh, uh, we have a long history of of, of labor disputes in in Shanghai uh, and uh, and in other cities workers are um, protesting for better working conditions more pay etc but also we see um the, the 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 growth of of kind of popular nationalism um, and it's the the, the 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 may 4th movement um is the most is often seen as the first Mass public expression of, of nationalism, um, a, a reaction uh, to uh, the to the the, the, the granting of, of German territories to Japan in in the, in the Treaty of Versailles after the First World War, when when the Chinese felt that they were going to get the the, the the German territories back, and that broke out in in Beijing. It was a student protest, but it, it also then became um, very much a, a a more general protest in in Shanghai. <coughs> Um, and of course, the Chinese Communists then used nationalism in 1925 um, during the May 30th protest, which is the, the high point of the Chinese Communist Party um, in Shanghai in the 1920s, as a way to garner support um, among workers in the industries. Um, where they have uh, 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 the most the most leverage, and it's one of the things that they use, as well as as well as 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 as, as agitating for better working conditions. So, yeah, protest is is, is 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 quite malleable during during this period. But all these forces come together, and we see similar protests and similar reasons for protests um, in, in other cities um, uh, uh, around um, Asia um as as Tim Harper has, has written about Southeast Asia um and in other cities around the world.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. Um but to switch switch gears and maybe focus on something a bit more lighthearted, uh I really enjoyed um your descriptions of nightlife and entertainment uh during this uh time period as well, especially during the uh the twenties and thirties in, in Shanghai. And I was wondering, uh, as much as we might associate this culture of consumption and, and leisure as something that was perhaps imported into Shanghai, to what extent was Shanghai still a Chinese city with its own local identity?
0: Yeah, that's, that's a question that, um, that has been bothering historians for a very long time. <laughs> um, and i and and it's a, it's a question that that people reflected on at the time right so there was in literature there was the high pie versus jing Pai debate you were either open minded and and kind of out outgoing and global and that was you were based in, in in shanghai or or you were seen as somehow perhaps a bit more traditional a bit more chinese and that that was kind of um, what 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 literati and what what writers in Beijing were had, had, how, how they perhaps saw themselves um uh, and I think it's worth saying that Shanghai of course is is a is a migrant city I mean yes the city had existed for a very long time it it, 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 it its roots go right back into Imperial China but it, the explosion of population came about because of industrial because of industrialization well what was one of the reasons Taiping rebellion was very important as well but um, and it, and so Shanghai is is a mixture of cultures from around China, um, and Shanghainese, the dialect is 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 a product um, of in part of, of of that. But it's in Shanghai where you can eat food from across the country, you can listen to to storytelling from across the country, pray to, to gods, um, um from across the country. And so, for foreign culture is an aspect of that of that cosmopolitanism. And I think that's that's something that we see very much in in the nightlife, and it, there is the the, the clubland that I that I talk about, and that Mushing, um, who who I quote in in the book, wrote about. You know, he went to these clubs, and that was a mixture of American jazz and um, with, with 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 kind of Chinese Chinese singers and and, uh, and Chinese players. Um, and, and then you would go if you wanted something that was a little more homegrown, but a mixture of all sorts of, 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 of cultures from around China. You would go to to Shijie, to, to Great World, um, uh, and there were six floors of kind of entertainments, um, fortune telling, all sorts of different stories, different foods, et cetera, et cetera. And that was something that Chinese and foreigners wrote about. So so I see Shanghai as a Chinese city, but it, it again, it has its own distinct culture. And then Beijing has its own distinct culture, Developing as as a tourist city during this period, as the as the imperial the imperial parks and gardens start start to open up right at the very very end of the Qing dynasty and then into the Republican period, and it reinvents itself, tries to reinvent itself, because of course the capital has moved to Nanjing after 1927, so Beijing tries to reinvent itself as as, as a tourist city, and, and to to some degrees of, of success. Uh, and then other other cities are developing their own culture. Chengdu, which um, which Wang Di has talked about in the nineteen twenties and thirties, you know, really uh, developing a, a teahouse culture in, in in the southwest, um, uh, uh, et etc. Cetera, et cetera. So again, it's just just in the same way that cities in the imperial period have their own distinct cultures, we see that again in the in, in the twentieth century. And some of those cities, most notably Shanghai, have a bit more foreign culture uh, 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 than others.
1: Yeah, for sure, so also I think we have to discuss the war years as well uh, as we move into this time period uh, and especially since this is such an interest of yours as well. So how did uh, the Chinese urban system mobilize for the war effort and uh, how did the devastation of war pave the way for urban designs and, and forms in the in the post-war era?
0: Yeah, so that, that is a really interesting question. So. I'm not sure we can, say, we can say that the Chinese urban system mobilized because much of it was was occupied by, by the Japanese. Mm. We know of course that the, the nationalists retreated to, to Chongqing in the southwest. Um, and Chongqing certainly certainly mobilized um, and it became very much a city, a city at war. Um, and we have some wonderful descriptions of of, of air raid shelters, for example. And, and more bomb, bombs were bought, were dropped on Chongqing over three or four years than were actually dropped on on, on London uh, uh, during the Blitz. And, and so, uh, so, air raids were a, a feature of of life in in, uh, in wartime Chongqing. Um, and Urban urban planners who who by this time were, were well versed in in international planning ideas. Um, so a lot of them had had studied in in, in Europe or, or particularly in America, um, or they or they had read uh, translations um, of, 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 of 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 some of the great kind of kind, kind of architects people like Le Corbusier. They they were certainly thinking about how to deal with, with war and how to deal with reconstructing cities after the war. And one of the big things was how do you construct a city, um, how do you design a city so that you can prepare for, for air raids? Um, or how do you design a city so that you can prepare for, for, for an, a, an atomic bomb after after the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki? And I, I'm not sure that anybody has really answered the second question, but one of the things about about air raids is that... If you go to many Chinese cities today, and you go you go into into the the the, the underground car parks of a, a big housing development or a big commercial development, you'll see air defense equipment in underground car parks. You might even see huge doors, which are kind of almost like bomb doors, big steel doors that you can shut so that you can get people down. And if if Chinese cities were to be come under aerial attack today, then there would be a modicum of protection for some people who could get there as well. And that's something that is still incorporated, I think, into some designs. So, so the war has left a lasting legacy and one, I think that, that we that we still need to study an awful lot more.
1: Yeah. And the uh, reconstruction era as well too, I think is uh, something that needs to be, <laughs> needs to be further researched, uh, right?
0: Yes, I would certainly say that. I, I, <laughs> uh, I, I uh we don't have so so i am i'm i'm i've been doing some work on, on changsha which in hunan and changsha was i mean it was the, there were four battles it was burned by by the the nationalists in 1938 as they were retreating and it was occupied by the japanese so something like 80% of buildings in changsha were destroyed um And and that ranks along with Dresden. It ranks along with, with London. I mean, you name any major or Stalingrad. And we have multiple books on Dresden, multiple books on Stalingrad. Of course, we have books on places like Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Tokyo, after the huge bombing of Tokyo. But I don't know of any book in English on Changshan. About how the city was reconstructed, about how the people in Changsha kind of dealt with the fact that their city was constantly fought over by the Japanese. There's stuff in Chinese you can go and read some wonderful um, descriptions in Chinese. Um, uh, But I think these cities require, you know, need to be. This needs to be looked at because that set the scene for what the communists then did. Um, They had to deal with with the legacy of of this wartime destruction um after 1949 because of course just as places like dresden and london were not rebuilt within two or three years it took it took 20, 20 years in some cases for, for cities to be to be rebuilt even as they continued to develop that is the same for for many of the chinese cities that that, that suffered so terribly during during world war Two.
1: yeah there's definitely a lot more work uh that need that can be done in in english and um especially from this era and afterward, um, I can say also as someone who studied uh, urban planning during the Mao era, that there uh, there is really not a lot written about it, uh, at least so far in, in English. But uh, actually, I wanted to ask you about this as well, uh, because you mentioned that the conventional view of China during the Mao era was that it was under-urbanized. Um, and... To a certain extent, this was the view that, uh, that uh, many in the West had of, of socialist countries in general, but uh, how do you respond to this assessment?
0: Yeah, I, I have a, a problem with that, because that, that kind of assumes, I think, that there is a, a normal path towards an urban society. Uh, and the idea about under urbanization is that you know you have a certain amount a certain level of industrialization and therefore you should have a certain level of urbanization a certain population living in cities and it's not to say that, that 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 you know Chinese cities had their own their own way of developing and 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 the way in which they controlled the urban population as it industrialized was part of that way um of developing so i'm not sure that un- calling that under urbanization is the right is is the right term um uh the way in which industrial urbanization happened during the maoist period had certain consequences some of those consequences of which are still being felt today most notably uh, uh differences between urban and rural household registration the the, the hukou mm-hmm. um which of course developed in in and after the mid-1950s but but that's if we call it under-urbanization, we're, 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 we're almost implicitly comparing it to, to either over-urbanization or a normal path of urbanization. So I think it's just best to say that we have a period of of, of Chinese socialist, or Chinese Maoist, Chinese socialist urbanization set within the broader framework of, of, of socialist development of cities, um, be that the USSR, be that Eastern Europe, and that that then has... Has consequences that we see during during the reform period, um, and and it's just and I, I I mean I understand why why it was used a lot of a lot of that early work was written by by urban planners not not historians. Um, it comes out of some of the work of the nineteen seventies and the early nineteen eighties, um, uh, and and urban urban studies theorists, urban planners were kind of using the models that they had, and those models were derived from from the European and the American experience. So from from that perspective, um, you know, I can understand how the term has 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 gained traction, but I think it's one of those terms that that perhaps we want to problematize.
1: Yeah, for sure. I'm also really curious about the the imaginative place of the city under Mao, um, with with um, the extreme politicization of of uh, everyday life during this era. Did the, uh, did the category of, um, of the urban perhaps lose some of its relevance during this time? You know, for instance, uh, urban literature, um, did the urban part um, suddenly become a bit, a bit less relevant?
0: Uh, that's, that's a really interesting question. So obviously the, the, the Hukou distinction is still very important, and I think mm. we need to, you know, administratively speaking, actually I, I think the urban is, is even more stark during the Maoist period. Um, but yeah, certainly discursively, a, a, lot of the, a, a lot of what was came out of the Chinese Communist Party is that, that they wanted to wipe away the distinction between urban and rural resolve, the imbalances um, between these two spaces. Uh, but I think we know from, from work like, like Jeremy Brown, um, and Jim Brown's wonderful work on, on Tianjin, Um, uh, My colleague here in the UK, Mark Baker, who's 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 written about Zhengzhou, that actually these distinctions remain and certainly in urban rural inequality certainly remained. So culturally speaking, yeah, I I think we can say that there is still urban culture because urban culture comes from from the you don't get you don't get Danway, for example, in the countryside. So the Danway culture is, is so important to in state-owned industries. And yes, there are state-owned industries in the countryside, um, and, and, and it most notably perhaps on, on the third front. It's quite hard to see some of these massive factories being built in, in, in the interior as being built in cities. But nevertheless, um, an awful lot of Danway. It, were, were developed in in cities, uh, uh, and that that culture, that that, that the way in which um, the, the work units kind of governed daily life, and the way in which it uh, um, they became spaces in which the the the, the communist campaigns were enacted, um, uh, that 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 very much has has an urban spin. So again, I think it comes back to the one of the questions that that we discussed at the beginning, which is how does urban history relate to the history of other historical developments? So how does urban history relate to the history of the Cultural Revolution? How does urban history relate to the history of um, industrialization? It's picking out what is particular about the urban um, in, these, in these histories. Um and, and and that i think is still possible during 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 the maoist period uh, and I think we are we are slowly beginning to do that
1: yeah i think I think that there's definitely a lot more work to be done and especially uh you know to bring this more intersectional approach to uh to the study of cities under mao um so I would love to talk uh, a lot longer about Mao, but I think we have to end from just with, uh, just with one final question on the reform era before we go too, before we go too long. Um, so when we talk about Chinese cities today, um, a lot has changed in, in what people are really referring to and how, how they think of them, not just in China, but also in the West, of course. And often it means uh, enormous skyscrapers and levels of development and, and modernity that you would find perhaps in a European city. But um, at the same time, Chinese cities are also host to uh, a range of you know, unusual and uh, perhaps we could say aberrant phenomenon as well. So I'm referring to things like ghost cities, the destruction of historic neighborhoods and the, and the deepening of spatial inequality, for instance. Uh, so are these phenomena part of a of a single coherent uh, contemporary urban story in china
0: uh, yeah I, I think I think they are, and i think it's it 's all connected to the political economy of of how land has gradually been privatized and, and your Tian Xin tells this story. Um, I think, really, really beautifully in, in her book. And, uh, and her book is, is an absolute kind of must read for anybody who wants to understand urbanisation in the reform period. <clears throat> and so basically, the Chinese state controls um, the, 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 the freehold, if you like, uh, uh, of, all, of all land in cities, and it's the leasehold or the usage rights which have become available for um, Chinese developers um, to, to gain access to, um, and for Chinese uh, governments to to, to sell, um, and of course with land, everybody gets to make money. So the developer gets to make money, and the developer wants to sell that the, the commercial unit or the housing unit onto 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 to a company or, or to an individual who then wants to make money as the house prices go up. And so we just because every uh, and 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 the, the the mayors of the cities or the heads of the urban districts. Because they see the GDP of the areas that they control going up, they're more likely to get promoted within the Chinese Communist Party. So the profit motive really underlies urban development in China, and it's why we have. And at the same time, we have a huge pool of people who want to come to the city, try and get an urban hukou if they can, and then and then make money um, and and improve improve their lives at least. At least um, until you know very, very very recently, perhaps perhaps the dynamic is being changed a little bit. But certainly, this is the story of much of the reform era, and so cities are just—it's the profit motive that has driven Chinese urbanisation, and that 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 drives um, uh, 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 developers when they're when 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 they're they're looking at, at, at a historic neighbourhood and they set the, the value of that historic neighbourhood against um, the value that they can get um, of having several thirty-story our um, uh, uh, housing blocks and and, and perhaps uh, perhaps our uh, mall. Um, uh, 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 that obviously that can get far more money uh, uh, developing that than they can by maintaining the the, the historic um, uh, built environment uh, and the, the community that lives there. Um, and then we see huge kind of uh, ghost cities, the so-called ghost cities, kind of the rush to develop something before people have, have moved in, before we have the infrastructure there, although a lot of those ghost cities are, are now becoming filled up um, uh, as people move, move into these cities. Um, and, and then, of course, just in the last two or three months, I suppose, we see with, with property companies, developer companies like Evergrande being hugely indebted um, and being uh, and being unable to 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 really repay those loans and the impact that we're now beginning to see um on on other industries in china and so uh, as people make money people need to to, to developers and uh, and others need to need to find the capital to fund all this all, all of this development and and so perhaps we're beginning to see some of some of what happens kind of at the other end of this of this process. And so in some ways, it's a, it's a really fascinating time to ask the question that you've asked because I don't think anywhere anyone really knows um, uh, where the story of indebted property developers is going to end in China um, and, and what the impact of that is going to be. And and, the, uh, 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 and I certainly don't, don't 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 know. But but it's absolutely fascinating to see where we are and where the last decades, really, in the reform period have brought us.
1: Yeah, trying to make predictions, uh, I think, is uh, really <laughs> a game that's best not played, uh, especially in, uh, in China when it comes to such kind of issues. But uh, also, yeah, sometimes the so-called aberrations can reveal the workings of the, the structure, uh, but just in a, in a different way than we might uh, not otherwise be aware of.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right.
1: Yeah, so okay, uh, I think we'll have to stop here. You've been very gracious with your time, and I really apologize for uh, the technical issues that we've had. But uh, just before we go, uh, what's what's next for you? What are you working on? Um, what are you working on next?
0: Well, as as I've said a couple of times, um, it, I'm looking at how Chinese cities were reconstructed after after the war. Um, I'm actually on my desk. Is actually a book about the 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 fallout of the third Reich called Aftermath, which has just been published, um, which my my colleague here at Leicester put me onto. So, so as I look at how Chinese cities were were, were kind of reconstructed, I, I'm really interested in comparing China to to Germany to to Japan. Uh, and I suppose if if you were to ask me what what, what I wanted to do in five years' time, I, I'd really have liked to have published. The version of John Dower's embracing defeat for China. But mm. I, I'm not sure that I'm going to get. I'm not sure I'm going to. I, 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 that's that's a huge kind of thing to say, and, and that you know that's really some really big shoes to fill. That's an absolutely wonderful book, um, but it's a book that we don't have for China, um, and, and and I'd really like to to bring to light something of 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 the challenges that Chinese people faced. Um, at the end of of of, of the, of the anti Japanese war of resistance, um, and how they overcame those those challenges in in the months and years afterwards, and how um, kind of rebuilding um, their lives and rebuilding their their their, their cities um, was the basis for the for the construction of of of, of Maoist society and, and the legacy that 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 has left. And it's a story that I think is a really important story to tell because. Chinese people went through an awful lot of hardship to, to 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 construct, you know, what is what 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 is the world's largest urban society, and that was a really important period in in, in that construction. So that's that's the project for the next few years, and I, I, I will see how long it takes me to to write to write that book.
1: Well, absolutely, I'm sure I'm sure it will be challenging, but also very rewarding, and uh, we'll be looking forward to it whenever uh whenever you uh happen to finish so with that uh thank you again for joining me today it was a pleasure to talk with you and uh yeah we'll have to have you on the program again when when you're finished with that
0: great thank you very much indeed zachary it's been a real pleasure to talk to to you
1: as well you too thank you